I'm always beset by an, an almost irresistible urge to start reading the speaker's prepared speech. Welcome to the Monday Night Lecture. This is, I believe, Rare Book School Lecture number 478. You can imagine such a thing. How learned I must be. <laughs> In particular about Lucille, because this is the second time that Sid Hutner has spoken from our platform on the subject of one of the most interesting of all 19th century publishing phenomenons. Gone with the Wind would be another possible title for this lecture. America's favorite book, 1860-1930, Owen Meredith's Lucille. It's a great pleasure to welcome Sid Hutner back to Rare Book School. Is this set up the way we? Yeah, sounds. Everybody can hear. Good. If you can't at some point, please wave because I really do want to communicate. Uh, Terry offered me uh, when he asked me to uh, uh, to give the talk tonight either no slides at all up and watch the sunset in the rotunda or uh, have images and, and be down here no sunset. And uh, we have not been able to get my images all to look as good as they did when I pre previewed them on Friday. So you'll have to bear with me. I think they all make sense, but some of them you'd like to have sharper, and they, they pixelate out and whatnot. So they're not terrible. They're just a couple that are bad. Um, <clears throat> in 1995, nine years ago, uh, my wife and I curated an exhibit in the Rotunda uh, titled Lucille's Adventures in, in America, Orchids, Gold Leaf, and Padded Leather, uh, which we hoped was mildly suggestive. Uh, one evening, we gave a talk for a lively rare book uh, school audience. Uh, Marianne Malkin was present that evening, and to our delight, she confirmed a story uh, we'd previously heard but had not been able to verify. In the 1930s, uh, a Boston bookseller was said to have had so many copies flowing into his shop of a single unsaleable book that he devised a way to dispose of them. Each summer, he traveled by ship to England to buy books for stock, and he filled his trunks with the unsaleable books tossing them overboard, mid-ocean, uh, thus creating packing space uh, for the books, for his new acquisitions on the trip home, and knowing that each copy tossed overboard was a copy that would not wander back into his shop. <laughs> the book was Owen Meredith's Lucille, and it was unsellable because there were tens and hundreds of thousands of copies in circulation, and because no one much read it anymore. Still, 20 and 50 years earlier, it had been a wild bestseller in the United States. In 1914, uh, Hurston Company included it in its One Million series. Every title has sold over one million copies. It's not entirely clear whether Hearst had sold a million copies or Hearst was just estimating that uh, all of the publishers who'd sold copies had sold a million total. Uh, indeed, in the 1920s, uh, Lucille was the most popular name given to newborn females. Uh, for several years running, the book being so well known and presumably admired uh, by their mothers, who had first read it as girls and as young women a few years on either side of the new century. I warrant the jolly few of you have read it, and that most of you know nothing more about it than the title of my talk this evening, although there was one young lady back here somewhere who tells me she owns a copy, so knows a little bit more about it. Uh, Lucille was the work of Owen Meredith, the pseudonym of Edward Robert Bulwer-Lytton, 
born in 1831 to Rosina and Edward George bulwer Lytton. If you don't recognize that name, that's the novelist who wrote, uh, who, who began one of his novels with the immortal sentence that starts, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> Generally ignored by his parents, uh, Robert was raised uh, by a nurse until being sent to Harrow uh, at 14. There he began to write poetry. In 1850, at the age of 19, at his father's insistence, uh, Lytton embarked on a diplomatic career. Despite Robert's literary predilections, the novelist wanted his son to take up a profession that would enable him to support himself and to keep up Nebworth, the huge family estate that he would someday inherit. And now we have to see if these work. So there we go. If anybody, if anybody sees me reaching for the X in the upper right, very upper right, gasp, the whole thing goes out. I have to click on the lower one. Ah, there's a not terribly good view of Nebworth. You can see why uh, uh, the father may have been somewhat concerned about maintenance uh, problems. Um, uh, the uh, the the property is still owned by the Lytton family, and they. Uh, they deal with the upkeep problem in a somewhat different way. You, you, you can see Nebworth in the background there. Uh, but the young man uh, refused to deny his muse, so the story of his life is a patchwork of diplomatic postings and the publication of new works. bulwer Lytton also insisted that Robert assume a pseudonym in order to avoid any public confusion between the works of father and son, uh, hence the Owen Meredith. His early diplomatic service did yield one prize for Lytton. During his posting to Florence, he encountered the Brownings, uh, who not only encouraged his poetic aspirations, but became lifelong friends. Elizabeth Barrett Browning's novel in verse, uh, Aurora Lee, published in 1857, uh, served as a prototype for Lucille, and like Lucille, saw many editions in the, uh, you know, in the United States. Lytton's first book, Clytemnestra and Other Poems, was published by Chapman and Hall in 1855 to general critical acclaim. He then continued to compose poetry as he moved among continental embassies, publishing a collection of 101 poems uh, in 1859, uh, followed by Lucille in April of 1860. Although Lytton's uh, literary popularity waned after the publication of Lucille, he continued to publish poetry, even as he was taking on ever more important diplomatic jobs. His foreign service career reached its apex in 1876, when Disraeli appointed him Viceroy of India. The term of his India service is the only period of Lytton's life when he did not publish, probably because he was preoccupied with Queen Victoria's coronation as Empress of India. He coordinated that event. Uh, he also supervised the first Afghan war, um, and uh, some of the results that he did or did not give, uh, get are still with us today. Uh, there was also an incredible widespread famine in southern India with millions of uh, people dying and with um, uh, Lytton at the top of the bureaucracy that was trying to distribute food rather frantically to, uh, to save lives. Uh, and he also, uh, his, his third son was born during that period as well. Returning to London after the Liberal Party's victory in the 1880 elections, he was uh, promoted to Earl, Earl of Lytton, and spent a couple of years writing a biography of his father. Uh, named ambassador to France in 1887, 
Uh, he died suddenly in Paris uh, in November of 1891. Uh, his final work, uh, uh, again in verse uh, called Marat, was published the following year. Uh, get rid of this, and that's, I'm sorry, the worst of them. <laughs> that's uh, a Lytton uh, in an image that was used again and again as a frontispiece <coughs> for Lucille. Uh, Lucille, a novel set in verse, it's some 7,000 lines of anapestic pentameter arranged in couplets. It's a romantic story in the French fashion. Indeed, the plot line was freely borrowed from George Sand's novelette Lavinia, a story first published in 1833. Uh, by later, tougher standards, it could be said, and indeed it was said, to have been plagiarized. Uh, our heroine is a young, wealthy widow, the Lucille, the Comtesse de Nevers, a woman capable of committing great indiscretions while remaining admirably virtuous. <laughs> the poem opens with Lucille's letter to Lord Alfred Bargrave, a former suitor whom she's not seen in a decade. The affair had ended badly. Uh, Bargrave des describes its end uh, in the following way. She bored me. <laughs> I showed it. She saw it. What next? She reproached. I retorted, of course she was vexed. <laughs> Lucille, however, still harbors affections for him, and upon hearing of his betrothal to, Martil to Matilda Darcy, she bids Bargrave to come visit her in the hopes that the vicissitudes of ten years upon his person will quench passions fueled by memories of a dashing youth. The scheme fails magnificently, <laughs> for not only are Lucille's emotions intensified, but Alfred once again finds himself in love with her. Further complicating the matter is the simultaneous arrival of the Duke Eugene de Lavoie, a French libertine who is also in love with Lucille. The Duke, recognizing in Lord Alfred a rival, deceives the Englishman into believing that Lucille has agreed to marry him and dispatches Alfred back to his fiancée, Matilda, only to have Lucille reject his, that is, Lavoie's, marriage proposal. Okay? Some time passes, and the three players in this love triangle meet again, this time at the spa at Ems, where they're joined by Matilda, uh, who is now Bargrave's wife. The jealous and vindictive duke sets about creating discord in the Vargrave marriage, but is foiled by Lucille, who sets things right between the couple. The Duke flees to join the Foreign Legion, the happy couple returns to England, and Lucille continues her journeys through the fashionable haunts of Europe. The Crimean War, 1853-1856, the War of Florence Nightingale and, uh, and the Light Brigade, <coughs> is the setting of the final scenes of the poem. Lucille, uh, who is now uh, Sarah Seraphine, a sister of charity, is nursing a young man Bargrave's son, uh, who is pining for the love of the niece and ward of a French general who opposes their engagement. The general is, of course, the Duc de Lavoie. <laughs> Lucille contrives a meeting with the Duke, and during the interview she so softens his heart that he relinquishes his grudge against Bargrave and grants for permission for the marriage that he'd previously forbidden. Uh, that's the whole plot of the 7,000 lines. <clears throat> Uh, the first American printing of Lucille, 2,550 copies, issued in June of 1860, was in a well-known series, a Tickner and Fields Blue and Gold. 
know. These are quite small volumes, about oh, three and a half by five and a half uh, inches. They're blue and gold because obviously the, the, um, uh, the covering cloth was blue. Uh, all edges were gilt, which was most of the gold, and then a, a bit of gold on, on the spine. Uh, and a, a tremendous number of titles were, were first brought out as, as blue and golds. Um, it sold steadily. It was reviewed in a number of periodicals, including the New York Times, whose comments began, uh, quote, the younger Bulwer has, estayed, has essayed in this volume the difficult task of producing a novel as rhyme. Lucille is a new book, issued in blue and gold, like Tennyson's, Longfellow's, and Lowell's poems, and must occupy the same shelf with these latter uh, whenever it shall find its way to a library. But its coat is better than its body. <laughs> the review went on to detail flaws, but still it concluded with admirably correct insight. Quote, Lucille, having that which is good mingled with that which is bad, is therefore not perfect. Yet there are pleasant and hearty words in it, and it will be read. End quote. Critics agreed that the choice of anapestic couplets was inappropriate for so long a poem, and Meredith's method of setting his verse provides no small problem for the reader, including me. I've never been able to finish it. The, the reviewer for the Dublin University Magazine wrote, quote, Perhaps the worst and most fatal fault in this book is its meter. It is simply provoking to see such costly jewels so poorly set. Attempting to avoid the sameness of a pause at the end of each couplet, uh, Mr. Meredith seldom pauses there, save about once in 20 lines. End quote. And in another review, quote, the versification is so bad as again and again to interrupt with disgust what would otherwise have been a very interesting story. <laughs> End quote. The critics, however, could not ignore the elements that endeared Lucille to the reading public. Meredith was a master of description, whether his subject was a storm raging over the Pyrenees, the moral character of an English lord, or the personal charms of his heroine. Here is his description of Lucille on the occasion of her reunion with Alfred at the poem's beginning. Her figure, though slight, had revived everywhere the luxurious proportions of youth, and her hair, once shorn as an offering to passionate love, now floated or rested redundant above her airy, pure forehead and throat, gathered loose under which by one violet knot the profuse, milk-white folds of a cool, modest garment reposed. Rippled faint by the breast, they half hid, half disclosed. And her simple attire thus in all things revealed the fine art which so uh, artfully all things concealed. Not bad. Uh, at one time, many people, including most Americans able to read, knew many passages from Lucille, including, I suspect, that one, uh, knew, knew them by heart and recognized other, others. Uh, Herma Clark, who served for several decades as secretary to a wealthy Chicago couple, uh, later wrote, quote, gift books came in with the 80s and were, as, as the name implies, made to be given away. No one on earth would ever have thought of buying one to keep. It might be said of them in scriptural language, it is more blessed to give than, than to receive. Yet they were well made, bound in mustard color or olive green cloth, the title stamped in gold with much gold ornamentation. Tennyson's Maud, Longfellow's Evangeline, or The Courtship of Miles Standish, Owen Meredith's Lucille, these were the ones most often found on center tables. From Lucille, one quoted the only lines that seemed at all interesting, the ones beginning, we may live without poetry, music, or art. That was the one virtue of gift books. They started conversation. 
for the caller usually remembered some line in one of the poems, and the hostess said, yes, it is beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> Clark, uh, Clark's reference is to part one, canto two, verses 18 and 19, which contain the few lines from Lucille that continue to appear in Bartlett's quotations and regularly, regularly turn up on placemats and in restaurant advertising. Bargrave, uh, having had a hard day on horseback, checks himself into an inn, sees to his toilet, and heads downstairs. Meredith opines, verse 18, O hour of all hours, the most blessed upon earth, blessed hour of our dinners. The land of his, the land of his birth, birth, the face of his first love, the bills that he owes, the twaddle of friends and the venom of foes, the sermon he heard when to church he last went, the money he borrowed, the money he spent, all of these things a man, I believe, may forget, and not be the worse for forgetting. But yet, never, never, oh never, earth's luckiest sinner uh, hath unpunished forgotten the hour of his dinner. Indigestion, that conscience of every bad stomach, shall relentlessly gnaw and pursue him with some ache or some pain and trouble remorseless his best ease as the Furies once troubled the sleep of Orestes. <laughs> then the climax is, is verse 19. We may live without poetry, music, and art. We may live without conscience and live without heart. We may live without friends. We may live without books. But civilized man cannot live without cooks. <laughs> He may live without books. What is knowledge but grieving? He may live without hope. What is hope but deceiving? He may live without love. What is passion but pining? But where is the man that can live without... Dining. Dining. <laughs> well, 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 one could go on. But duty calls. What I want particularly to do tonight is to outline some of the serious problems that Lucille raises for us as rare book librarians, collectors, bibliographers, and book historians. So I must spare you a report of our attempts to understand the reasons for the book's popularity. Uh, in pondering that, it does help to recall that Lucille preceded phonograph and movies, radio and television, and all of the other mass entertainments that we enjoy today. Reading, particularly reading poetry, was immensely popular in the, in the late uh, 19th century. When Tickner and Fields reprinted the book in 1862, uh, stereotype plates were made. Those plates were used 32 times over 24 years to print 32,486 copies of the blue and gold edition, and Lucille continued to sell in this format until 1886. By 1868, that is in just six years, Tickner and Field had, had, had printed 15,448 of the 32,486 copies, and in addition had brought the book out in three other formats, uh, one of them illustrated. That's the cover of the illustrated edition. Um, and all of them offered in, uh, in multiple bindings. Uh, in fact, a publisher's weekly poll of bookstores in 1877 proclaimed Lucille the most sellable uh, volume of poetry. By 1878, that is, over the first 18 years of publication, uh, Tickner and Fields and the firms that, that directly descend uh, from it 
had issued just under 100,000 copies in six different editions, two of them illustrated, um, and uh, uh, for a total of 83 printings. <clears throat> uh, since five of the six uh, editions were offered in between two and four bindings, that is in cloth, half-calf, tree-calf, antique Morocco, and the cloth was often of two or three colors with plum, uh, green, and terracotta favored, just within that group of 100,000, uh, 100, there, there can be as many as 500 identifiably different printings, states, issues, and binding variants. Um, we know this because the records of Tickner and Fields have been well preserved at Houghton Library for some time. They were preserved in part uh, because the firm was recognized at quite an early date uh, as a publisher of American writers of lasting importance. The records were also preserved because after several reorganizations, separations, and mergers, the final parts of Tickner and Fields were absorbed in 1889 by Houghton Mifflin and Company, and uh, Houghton Mifflin Company itself has had a long and fairly stable history uh, down to the day. As many of you know, before 1892, the United States was not a party to international uh, copyright conventions. To secure U.S. copyright, a book had to be manufactured and offered for sale in the United States before it was published in another country. This meant that books first published in England could not be copyrighted in the U.S. and were therefore available for reprinting by anyone who chose to do so without thought of royalty or other payments uh, to their authors. Uh, the manufacturer requirement um, assured that simply importing books uh, for sale in the United States before selling them in another country was not by itself an adequate means uh, by which to secure U.S. Uh, copyright. In the 1860s, in the absence of international copyright, American publishers by and large honored a long-standing trade practice whereby it was agreed that the publisher who uh, first brought out an uncopyrightable book still had a kind of property right to it that other ethical publishers did not invade. Uh, Lucille was first published in London by Chapman and Hall, with the American edition published more or less simultaneously, certainly with Chaplin and Hall's agreement, by the Boston-based Tickner and Fields. It's unclear to me that any actual money flowed either way across the Atlantic as a result of these agreements, but at least uh, Tickner and Fields could place the work of its American writers with Chapman and Hall, and vice versa, with both firms thereby enlarging their businesses in the relative confidence that their colleagues would not bring out competing editions, even though there was no law to prevent them from doing so. This no-poaching tra uh, trade practice began to break down in the 1870s, and it was gone, totally gone by the 1880s, as a host of new publishers who were not members of the publisher's old boys club and who specialized in reprint editions uh, came into existence. Lucille was popular from publication, but it would certainly not have become America's favorite book without those reprinters. I've not been able to determine precisely when the Tickner and Fields edition faced com competing editions. Uh, Thomas D. Hurst may have had Lucille in his Redline Poets in the early 1870s. Uh, that's not quite as sharp as it should be. The red line comes from the red line around every page, not just the title page. Immensely popular in the uh, 1880s. <clears throat> uh, he had certainly included the title by the mid-1870s, uh, Crowell had Lucille in his uh, Standard British Poets by 1879, and I think probably by a few years earlier. Let's see, binding. 
That's really awful. It looks great when you see it in full color. Uh, and Lucille was on John Wordle Lovell's Redline edition of the Poets in 1880. A little better. Uh, the same year that uh, it appeared in a two-column magazine format as title number 766 in George Monroe's Seaside Library, priced at 20 cents. So, from one point of view, uh, Pickner and Fields had Lucille to itself for most of 20 years. From another, it was without competition for a scant 20. The action heated up in the 1880s, increased formidably through about 1905, and then began to subside slowly until the First World War, at which point it declined even more rapidly until the last copies of the A.L. Burt uh, Home Library edition. Very plain. That's the spine. The gold is just, just cloth, totally undecorated. Uh, this edition was first introduced in 1891. It, uh, the, the last copies were remaindered in 1936. Uh, they survived quietly for two years in the catalogs of Blue Ribbon Books, and Lucille left the scene for 60 years. Between 1860 and 1936, just under 100 uh, American publishers issued one, a few, a few dozen, or many dozens of editions of the book. It was set in type at least 50 times, with most of, this, of the uh, setting stereoplated or electroplated, and reprinted in multiple and curious ways. It was illustrated at least a dozen times, and the illustrations were recycled and then recycled again. Uh, this is the frontispiece. Terribly well. Uh, the uh, the Tickner and Fields illustrated edition, the kind of orange binding that we saw earlier. This is that was the illustrated edition. This is one of the illustrations. Obviously, the binder kind of pulled the, the same image out of this uh, uh, Maurier illustration to use on the binding itself. Um, and in 1882, um, uh, uh, James Osgood. Uh, commissioned another rather well-known American illustrator, Mary Halleck Foote, uh, to commission to do a suite of, of um, uh, illustrations. She didn't complete them all, but this was her frontispiece design for it. Uh, and the text was simply placed in, in ordinary and extraordinary bindings that tumbled out one after another. Lucille is, of course, only one of thousands of titles published between 1860 and 1920. And it is unusual in that for 40 years it was, as Herma Clark noted, a standard gift book, one of a fairly small number of titles that presented at Christmas, New Year's, or most any occasion was certain to be regarded as a thoughtful gift. Since their text was fixed, gift books competed on price and on embellishment. Prices ranged from a nominal 10 cents for handy volume editions, smaller for 4 by 6 uh, size, uh, in decorated cloth of up to $12 for carefully printed, well-illustrated volumes bound in full leather. Embellishment was a challenge of balancing cost with splendor. Editions which offered more or better illustrations, color frontispieces, decorated pages, and showy or novel bindings competed well against more dowdy presentations, particularly if they were less, or at least not more, expensive. Uh, hence they rolled out, new and novel, each year or so the publishers promised, in cloth stamped with gold and inks in every style designers could imagine, in padded leathers, uh, particular, particular popular choice for the, dining, uh, for the uh, parlor table, 
um, uh, the uh, the leathers that they used were stripped from animals as a sort of a seal and alligator whole uh, range in between uh, around 1900 there was a great interest in what uh, was called limp booze uh, this one was designed by the illustrator of, of the Wizard of Oz books uh, for the Rand McNally Company. Uh, they were usually, usually called Ooze Pyrogravir. Uh, in this case, I think stamped, but very often the limp ooze was actually worked with hand tools. Uh, uh, this is also limp ooze, uh, sometimes called painted velvet calf. I quite like that one. Um, they also came out in endless amounts of, of half-calf, tree-calf, Levant, and Turkey, Morocco. And about, about this slide's again not very good, but about four publishers um, uh, experimented with celluloid. These uh, are two crowl bindings that have uh, celluloid overlays. Um, and I've, I've never been able to quite figure out how they were attached, but they're quite, quite firmly attached to that covering cloth. If price and embellishment were a central concern for publisher and buyer, uh, dated editions were not, and hence a problem for bibliographers and catalogers. A few publishers specialized in elaborate editions and dated them, uh, notably Frederick A. Stokes, who brought out a series of increasingly ornate um, editions during the 1890s, uh, the last of which was designed by Will Bradley. That is Bradley's design for the trade edition. Uh, there was also a much larger and more extensive uh, uh, deluxe edition. And that's Bradley's design for the title page. Uh, and this edition uh, had eight chromolithographs, uh, sorry, 12 lithochromographs uh, by an artist named uh, Madeleine Lemaire who is widely touted as having been among the most famous of artists available to the Stokes Company, and I haven't been able to find anything about it. Um, <clears throat> but after uh, 1880, uh, up to 1880, with Tickner and Fields, the primary publisher, uh, most things are dated. After 1880, it's the exceptional Lucille that, that was dated. An imprint date, in fact, probably was a disadvantage, as it would have been harder to sell the, quote, old stock in the face of the new stock that was being brought out every year. Uh, the way in which additions are added to and removed from the T.Y. Uh, uh, Crowell list, for example, suggests that a particular version was kept in stock until it sold out, which might take a year, uh, or in some cases, clearly, it took several years. Extensive use of series was another characteristic of the reprint houses. That is to say, most gift and reprint titles were lumped with other titles in a group that might be as small as a half dozen titles, uh, but that could grow as large as several hundred. Usually, if not universally, books in a series uh, that so identified were placed in uniform bindings. And the same binding structure and ornamentation was used, just the title and author stamps were changed. This meant that the series, or parts of the series, could be marketed as vigorously as individual titles. Entire series were offered at steep discounts from the cost of individual titles, Sometimes buyers were offered, offered their choice of 25 or 50 or 100 titles at a much reduced price, often with uh, shelves or cases designed to hold them included in the deal.
your own library. 25, 25 volumes for 575. Uh, this is actually from a Montgomery and Ward uh, company catalog, but you also find them in publishers' catalogs all the time. In effect, a, a buyer could configure a library to his or her own taste, concentrating on poetry or on fiction or on essays, uh, and buying the books in, uh, in uniform bindings, uh, essentially by the foot or, or by the yard. Uh, while it's clear that both series and individual titles were marketed in every way that publishers devise, could devise by direct sale, sales to bookstores, sales in department and other stores and shops, sales by way of mail order catalogs, including Sears and Montgomery Ward, mass and, and mass sales to other companies, even for use as premiums that could be stuffed into soap and cereal boxes. Uh, nonetheless, it's far from clear to me how buyers behaved. Would any bookshop or department store stock more than a handful of the many series that were available? Would a customer come into a bookshop uh, or a department store expecting or hoping to see the same book or books in 50 or more formats uh, and, and variant bindings? Uh, T.Y. Uh, Crowell by himself produced at least that and, and, and tended to renew most of them each year. Providing a stock of that size would have tied up huge amounts of space, and a customer making a selection uh, from such a large stock would surely have been overwhelmed. It seems much more likely that any single venue had small groups of offerings, probably selected for variety uh, around the taste and the means of the venue's customer pool. But how and by whom would all of the transactions uh, this implies have been negotiated? Who made the decisions on what to stock? On the basis of what knowledge or assumptions? Um, as far as I know, we don't have a clue and I think this is one of the indications of how little we know about the history of the book in the period 1820 to 1920. Though they seem not to have done so uh, as yet, book historians of the future will surely demand access to at least representative collections of reprint series issued in 1820-1920. They will have a hard time of it. Libraries have approached acquisition and cataloging of 19th century materials in largely traditional ways. And Lucille demonstrates that these ways will not preserve or present an adequate representation of 19th century book history. You cannot preserve or use uh, what has not been acquired. And it's difficult to acquire material when you can't adequately describe what you already have. It's equally difficult for readers to access materials which are inadequately described for their purposes. I recall seeing some years ago in the Library of Congress uh, rare book collection seven or eight shelves of variant paperback editions of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. There are a variety of titles in multiple copies and editions here at Rare Book School uh, in the Book Arts Press Collection, as most of you know or as you'll be, uh, be learning this week. Uh, they include about 350 Lucille's. The current signs up in the rotunda say 400, and that may be right. Uh, they are over in the rotunda if you want to go take a look. Um, uh, let's see. But it was Bob Rosenthal, uh, as curator of the Special Collections Department at the University of Chicago, uh, who predisposed me to start collecting Lucille's 20 years ago. 30 years ago, as curator there, uh, Bob was taking in every Lala Rook that he found. Um, I don't collect Lala Rook, but I have about a dozen. Bob was taking in every one that he had. Uh, on the grounds that this, this title, one title, first published in 1817 and frequently reprinted over the next century, formed a capsule history of 19th century book arts. 
when I last saw the run in the lower levels of Regenstein Library, there were about 70 copies that had accumulated. So, there is the occasional exception, but surely most of us agree that the central uh, chore of collection development is that of providing readers the greatest number of titles with the least possible duplication. A new edition, particularly one with scholarly notes, may merit acquisition, but we add yet another copy of the same text only when there's reasonably clear evidence that multiple, multiple copies are required to meet the needs of readers. And even these duplicates are often weeded once the need has passed. Indeed, as a kind of paradigm, one college library that I contacted in an early survey of institutions holding Lucille's found that they had uh, 17 copies on the shelf, all accessioned as gifts before 1925, none of which had ever circulated. <laughs> they kept two copies for their unusual bindings, and to my gratitude, they uh, allowed me to acquire the other 15. This seems to me to be responsible. Uh, this library very likely did not need these copies, and I certainly intend to do my best to see that they're well-preserved. Less responsibly, I think, another library answered my questions about their one rather uncommon edition, thanked me for bringing it to their attention, and mentioned offhandedly that they intended to discard it as no longer in scope of their collecting policy. Uh, they did not respond to my offers to buy it, and so, I suppose, by causing it to be looked at, I destroyed it. We certainly face massive challenges in maintaining what our predecessors did acquire, in maintaining, in William Gass's phrase, that shelved-up present which passes for time in a library. What our predecessors did not collect, however, suggests still other dimensions of the challenge we now face in reconstructing the history of publishing during the last half of the 19th century. Individual titles may or may not have been missed, but clearly there are whole classes of books which libraries avoided between 1860 and 1938. The vast outprint, output of the reprint industry is lightly and unsystematically represented in even the most comprehensive collections, and the Tickner and Fields records are highly unusual in that they have survived. I know of maybe one, perhaps two other archives out of the 100 publishers that I've identified that, that survived. Uh, of the 100,000 copies that Tickner and Field issued, I know the location of about 175, which collectively represent uh, about 75 variants out of the universe that I think might go up to 500. Some variants are relatively well represented. 11 copies of the first uh, edition of 2550 I know about, for example. Uh, but many are known in only one or two copies. For example, there were three printings of the second illustrated edition, a total of 4,050 copies issued in paper wrappers. Uh, there, are, there are just three copies known, two with an 1871 imprint, one with an 1872 imprint. Tickner and Fields imprints turn up regularly on eBay, so there are doubtless copies out there among booksellers uh, still to be collected. And in this case, the characteristics of many of the variants not reported are predictable. They were printed from stereotyped plates, so the text blocks differ mainly in title page date. Uh, the same binding plates and stamps were almost certainly used and, and reused. Nonetheless, locating even single copies of the missing variants, as it were, is a daunting assignment. And as I said before, you can't preserve what you can't first acquire. If libraries have not been inclined to collect multiple editions of a work, they've been even less inclined to collect whole series. Uh, I know of no surviving Lucille. Uh, to go back to the image we started with, the, 
first 1 million series. You can see the cut of the binding. Presumably those 36 titles were all issued in, in a binding that looked like that. And I know of no copy of Lucille uh, in that binding uh, after some 20 years of collecting Lucille's. Um, sorry, lose my place here. Uh, it's highly unlikely that any library holds these 36 titles uh, in this binding. Uh, it would take no great of, uh, amount of cash, but a whole lot of bookstore visiting and eBay watching, not to mention considerable luck, to assemble a set. Reassembling a larger series, you know, some of those that ran to two or three hundred titles, would be even more challenging. One goal of what I've come to call the Lucille Project is to collect and, uh, or record at least one copy of each variant Lucille issued, regardless of publisher. Starting in 1985, uh, by 1999, I had collected nearly 250 unique copies. For the past five years, because of eBay, I've been acquiring Lucilles at the fairly constant rate of two a week, a hundred a year. I'm far, far behind in my record keeping, and I haven't made a recent count, but 250 in 99, uh, 1999 plus 500 cents means the collection is now something over 750 uh, copies. The rate at which Lucille's I've uh, not previously seen pop up on eBay hasn't changed notably over five years. Occasionally there's a week, sometimes even two, when I see nothing new, and then bang, there'll be a bunch of fresh ones. I checked uh, eBay at three o'clock, and there's a hearse I've never seen. Coming up in five days. I'll be home by then, so I can get I'm sorry? <laughs> well, I, you, you can use those too, right? <laughs> um, uh, I get most copies that I bid, but every so often I'm outbid for reasons that I usually can't, can't decipher. <laughs> and for the most, except I didn't bid enough, obviously. Somebody comes in and snipes at the last minute for a reason that's very hard to understand. And for the most part, I have yet to see second copies of the ones that I've lost. Uh, still, I have a hunch we're closing in on a decent estimate of the total. Judging from what I, what, I, what I have and what I know I don't have and what I don't know but expect that I don't have, uh, I think there's around 2,000 variants. Sorting out the immense, mostly undated production of Lucille's is another goal of the uh, Lucille project. The fundamental difficulty is that differences between undated uh, editions are typically graphic, not textual and no number of words is sufficient to describe what you have in hand with confidence that there is not another copy to which your description would equally well apply, but which is, in fact, demonstrably different. There's also very little in the way of fixed vocabulary to use in the descriptions. In the card catalog uh, era, as represented by, say, the National Union Catalog of pre-1956 imprints, records for Lucille typically had an imprint statement like, quote, New York, H.M. Caldwell, bracket, one, eight, nine, question mark, close bracket, which equally de uh, well describes all of some dozens of editions uh, the, the Caldwell firm issued. These are the descriptions that are carried over into online catalogs. If you look at Arlen, you look at OCLC, you find the same indeterminate uh, information. As an example, <coughs> um, Consider the three copies of Caldwell's Laureate edition uh, that dates to 1901, and in the upper left, uh, one copy of the new Laureate edition that uh, was first issued in 1903. The two lower copies uh, have green spine strips, and the binding has been rounded. I don't think you can see that on the slide. Those two also have the same frontispieces and title pages. 
The one on the lower right um, has the title page of the upper copies, but it's printed in purple rather than in red, and it has a completely different frontispiece. The one on the lower left has both the frontispiece and the title page, I'm sorry, has both its frontispiece and title page unrelated to the other three copies. The two lower copies are printed from uh, plates that give a page count of 379 pages. The two upper copies from a different set of plates that yield 390 copies. Though the bulk of the paper in the two copies differs, uh, so that the one on the upper left is, is quite noticeably thicker than the one on the right. Uh, no two end sheets among these four are the same. They're all printed end sheets, but they're all of different patterns, as is the publisher's name as it is stamped on the bottom of the spine. But every copy has a, uh, a top edge gilt. That's the only real mark of conformity to the whole group of four. Those of you in the cataloging courses this week might want to create adequately descriptive bib records for this group of four. <laughs> Only recently has it become possible to embed links uh, to images in online records, and this is uh, not as yet a common feature in many library bibliographic databases. And even though it's technologically feasible, it will surely be some long time before images are routinely, let alone retrospectively, added to, say, WorldCat and Arlen records. Until they are, about the only hope is to persuade catalogers to look up their holdings on the Lucille Project website and, when possible, identify them to the series names and dates that I've combed out of Publishers Trade List Annual, which is not a little to ask of already harassed catalogers. Lucille was certainly not included in every series, far from it, but I think it was included in more series than any other single title. As a consequence, the more closely and accurately uh, Lucille's can be described, the more copies of other frequently reprinted books can be identified and dated on the basis of shared bindings. I want to end with a, uh, another descriptive dilemma, uh, though I'll then happily entertain your questions and comments. My work is summarized on a, web, on a website. Uh, the easiest way to get to it is simply Google the three words, Home, Hutner, and Lucille. And the top link almost always is, uh, is the site. Uh, I began the site about 1996, 1997, as a way to organize data drawn from Publishers Trade List Annual. It seemed natural to organize that data by publisher, and so the structure is a home page which links to a page with a list of, of all the identified publishers, uh, which in turn links to another set of pages for each publisher, uh, and so on down, and in some cases I think another two levels, so it's about five, but it's a very hierarchical site. Um, uh, all of the pages are simply coded in HTML with, with images embedded in it. And all of the pages have a couple of, of internal navigation links, but when I started it, uh, internal navigation to websites was not yet a known art. And I now have so many pages that I'd have to take twice the vacation I've got to <laughs> try to update them all and upgrade them. But someday I'll do it. The site seems to function pretty well for its intended uh, purpose. That is, if you have a Lucille in your hand, uh, particularly one that has its title page intact, you can drill down with confidence that you can find whatever evidence there is uh, about it. And also, if you Google the names of the hundred or so publishers, you typically hit the, that publisher's page. Uh, and again, uh, you might be able to uh, get information on your book. The site generates about uh, 2,000, something more than 2,000 uh, hits a month. And it generates uh, anywhere from two to five queries a week. Uh, 
uh, as Google uh, type searching has advanced, um, particularly when uh, uh, when uh, site restricted searching was added, it proved possible to use the site to recover a lot of interesting terminology. For example, if you do a site restricted uh, search of pyrogravure uh, or velvet calf, you get back a, a list of hits for the use of these terms in the context of the PTLA descriptions, uh, contemporary publishers' descriptions. There are hundreds of similar descriptive words that appear in the publisher's catalogs, and they give us a base for a glossary of contemporary publishers' terminology. I'll get to someday. Maybe. An alternative approach to, to a website, though one difficult to have envisioned back in 1996, would be a database of images connected by searchable metadata. There are a number of software choices that permit this today. Content DM, um, Greenstone, and Digitool are three examples. Uh, some permit both controlled vocabulary searches and searchable free text fields, uh, which in turn would make it possible to recover as an array, for example, images, all of the uh, Crowell uh, padded cloth handy volume editions, a group of probably 200 uh, records, or to look at all the public review uh, bindings, regardless of publisher. Probably a dozen, 15 publishers put out public review editions. You can do some of this using the, the uh, Google image search. I've been playing with that a little bit, and I think if I went back and renamed several hundred files rather carefully, we could we could improve the quality of, uh, of, of the results that we get. But unfortunately, I picked a different way of naming uh, back then. Placing the center, uh, I'm sorry, placing the publisher front and center, as the site now does, facilitates study of the publishers, but it somewhat obscures the relationships between competing editions that are similar in one respect or another. Building a site with images and metadata for one book at a time can bring like together with like, but it requires a, a more informed user to search and manipulate the records. And in, to some degree, it masks the context, context provided by each specific publisher. Uh, I'd, I'd ask you if uh, anybody has a, a way to avoid doing much the same work twice. I'd love to know about it. Thanks for your attention. If anyone has questions, comments, I'd be happy to react.